Father, we thank you for your presence we've sensed already today. You are a holy God. You are just. As Pastor Lane was praying, Lord, you are also merciful. And Lord, in your holiness and your justice and in your mercy, I believe you want to cry out to us today a loving alarm. And so, Lord, would you help us to not just hear your words today, but would you give us the strength and the boldness and the power to be obedient to what you're saying? In your name I pray. Amen. Amen. Take your Bible and turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, verse 29. We'll be there in just a second. And if you have a bulletin, pull out the outline that's in there. I think that'll be helpful to you today. As we dive into a message, I'm entitling Sin's Snare, a look at the seriousness of sin. Matthew chapter 5, verse 29 and 30. Jesus is speaking here in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Matthew chapter 5, verse 30. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Well, what, what does Jesus really think about sin? Most of us have been taught that when we come to a passage of Scripture like this, when we hear this, whether it's for the first time or we've grown up hearing this passage, it seems pretty strange. And, and we begin to sometimes just dismiss this as some crazy thought. Most of us have been taught possibly to toss this aside because Jesus was just using hyperbole. He didn't really mean what he said. Oh, hyperbole, what a nice intellectual sounding word. So we smile and we move on to other more sensible teachings that Jesus clearly meant what he was saying. But that idea is not an explanation of this passage. We're only assured of what this passage may not be saying, but that doesn't give us help on what Jesus is saying. The idea that Jesus is not hoping that we would literally take him up on the idea to pluck out our eyes, that doesn't mean that he didn't intend to say what he said. Jesus, the greatest communicator that ever lived, I believe, meant precisely what he said. He was wanting to communicate something to us. He probably said exactly what he was thinking about eyes and hands and sin. In fact, we know that Jesus didn't just say this once. He pronounced this teaching on more than one occasion. We find in Matthew chapter 18, verse 8 and 9, we see a similar teaching again. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or lame with two hands or then with two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and throw it away, Jesus says. It's better for you to enter in life with one eye than two eyes and be thrown into the hell of fire. So it turns out that we didn't just find Jesus on just a a bad metaphor day. Here he is again in the same gospel account, looking into the eyes of the same group of fishermen, making the same point. This should catch our attention. In fact, 
Leeks should be somewhat disturbed that Jesus feels that it's necessary to repeat himself over and over again on this topic and using such graphic and gory word pictures over and over again. Both times Jesus is addressing his disciples. Both times he's using these uncomfortable, unforgettable word pictures. In fact, why did he even repeat himself in the same statement when he talked about plucking out the eye? Could he have not stopped there? Why did he have to go on to cutting off the hand? This doesn't sound PG. This doesn't sound easy to understand. This doesn't sound something that that feels good. What was Jesus trying to say? Consider another graphic image that Jesus gives in Matthew 18, verse 6. If any of you put a stumbling block before one of these little ones who believe in me, it would be better for you to have a great millstone fastened around your neck and you would be drowned in the depths of the sea. Is anybody noticing some kind of theme here? Why does Jesus find it so necessary to paint such horrible graphic word pictures when he's talking about sin? The more I look at these passages of scriptures, the more they bother me. The more we try to say, well, that's not really what Jesus meant. We're missing out on, I think, what Jesus is saying. It is very important to me. I'm repeating myself, Jesus says. This is a big deal. The strong message that emerged from these passages and passages like it, I believe, is a clear and simple yet troubling and powerful truth. Jesus is talking about how serious sin is is while jesus may not intend for us to literally pluck out our eyes he is intending for us to hear this graphic message and says that's how bad sin is you should would rather get rid of your eye you should rather get rid of your hands you should rather be drowned in the sea than to enter into willful disobedience again or to help someone else move in willful disobedience we should want to choose That painful, gory detail over sinning itself. Make no mistake, Jesus tells us with clarity in these haunting images, sin is more serious than you might have guessed. We see that in Matthew 5, 29 and 30, Matthew 18, 8 and 9, and Matthew 18, 6. We find it all over Scripture, but The enemy wants us to get a different idea of sin. I believe today that that even when you hear Jesus' words on how serious he was about sin, Satan wants to get on your shoulder and tempt you to twist this and say, well, okay, so maybe Jesus kind of had it in his crawl or burr under his saddle about sin, but but sin's so vague. It's so relative. I mean, what's sin for you may not be sin for me, and and there's really no clarity on this. And to speak right into that lie from the pit of hell, I want us to look at this question. What is sin? Number one, if you're taking notes, jot this down. It is always a choice. It's a choice. Number two, it's a choice to choose to do what I want over what God wants. It's choosing to do what I want over what God wants. Well, where did you get that, Brady? Well, I'm glad you asked. James 4, 17. Anyone who knows the good that he or she ought to do and doesn't do it, sin. The scripture says sin is lawlessness. Sin is taking my will and putting it above God's will, choosing to do what I want over what God wants. The scripture is clear. This is sin. Well, okay, well, 
So sin is, is disobeying God, but, but who's to say what God really wants, Brady? You can't tell me. I mean, who, who knows what God wants? I'm glad you asked again. The Bible is the place that determines what we should and should not do. Huh? Well, look at 2 Timothy 3.16. The whole Bible was given to us by inspiration from God, and it's useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It straightens us out and helps us do what is right. Friend, sin is a very serious thing for Jesus. The best picture he could paint was these graphic, gory, nasty details that you should rather pluck out your eye or cut off your hand or cut off your feet than to continue to live in disobedience. Scripture tells us sin is a choice to choose what you want over what God wants. It's a choice where you are saying, God, I want my way more than doing it your way. The Bible is the place that tells us what is right and wrong. Well, uh, Pastor Brady, I, I don't do those really big, bad sins. You know, I, I mean, I, I can see how some hellion this could really apply to them, but, but mine are more of the, the vanilla or the, the, the white lie variety. They're not that big of a deal. Well, well, let's look at this. Are some sins worse than others? Well, I think there's two ways to look at this in, in, in all sincerity and honesty. As far as the consequence in this physical realm, yes, all sins don't carry the same scars here on earth. What do you mean? Well, if you would steal a pack of gum or you would take someone's life and murder, the the scars of that sin here on this earth will be different. But as far as the consequences in the spiritual realm are for all of eternity, no, all sin carries the same penalty with God. In just a moment, we'll talk about what those penalties are. But it's important to see in God's eyes and eternity in the spiritual realm, all sin is the same. It is all being disobedient to Him. Regardless of how you see the consequences on this earth may vary, the consequences in eternity are the same. Okay, well, well, who's done this? You're probably not speaking to me, Brady. I mean, this is this is good. You preach it for someone else. Well, well, let's look at this. Every single one of us have sinned. Except for Jesus, he was the only one to live a sinless life here on this earth. Every man, woman, boy, and girl have sinned. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of God's glorious ideal, short of his perfect plan for us. So what's the big deal? Why did Jesus get so worked up about it? Why did he say it repeatedly to the same group of disciples over and over again of how serious sin was? Well, here's the consequences of sin. First, separation from God. Isaiah 59, verse 2. The problem is that your sin has separated you from God. Your sins have separated you from God. Well, that's not such a big thing. I mean... I like God and all, but I can kind of make it through my day without Him. Really? Every good and perfect gift comes from God. When you're in separation from God, you're in separation from everything good. This idea that you're going to live in eternity in hell separated from God, and you feel good about it because all your friends are going to be there, let me wake you up with something. It's going to be absolutely hell. It's going to be the worst thing possible. Everything good will be absent from this place. It is separation from God. We have more instruction on what... The consequences of sin are, second, we see spiritual death. 
moving and living in willful disobedience to God ends in spiritual death. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Sin itself here on this earth has brought about physical death as well. Look at Genesis 3.19. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam and Eve. Here in this garden, in the beginning of creation, God intended for us to live this perfect life. He did not want disease to come in. He did not want death to come in. But sin ushered in not only the spiritual death, but the physical death that we are racked with here on this earth. Separation from God, spiritual death, physical death. Fourth, we see spiritual captivity. It's not just this cloud hanging over us that someday you and I will get what's coming to us. No, no, right here, right now, in this moment, we can live in the chains of sin as captives. And Jesus says, I have come to give you life and to the full in John 10, 10. It's the best life possible. And when you are wrapped up in these chains of sin... There's no way you can experience the victory that I want you to experience. And, and Jesus says, hey, don't live in the consequence of spiritual captivity. Second Chronicles 6, 36, when they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them, you give them over to the enemy who takes them captive. Make no mistake, just as God is real, so is the enemy. And the enemy wants to take you captive in word, thought, and deed, and wants to wrap you up in the chains and the snare of sin. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. In your anger do not sin, and do not give the devil a foothold. Don't give him a place to hang on to you, to latch on to you, to grip onto you. And friend, Jesus says this sin is real. He says it is serious. It's a big deal. So much so that you should rather pluck out your eyes, chop off your hands, chop off your feet, than to continue to live this way. Oh, Brady, that's so exaggerating preacher talk. Take it up with Jesus. That's his sermon. He didn't just give it once. Over and over. He said, I love you so much. I don't want you to stay stuck in this. Hey, don't miss this. Every time in Scripture when God or Jesus says, don't do this, he's saying, don't do it. It's going to hurt you or someone else. When he says, I want you to do this, he's saying it's going to bless you or someone else. The most loving thing that Jesus can do is sound the alarm today and say, hey, this sin thing, it's serious. There are consequences to sin. Well, okay, I I guess I'm seeing that Jesus takes this serious and we've all sinned, but but I don't do a lot of this. I mean, so how much is, is too much? Well... Let's look at number five. How many times do I have to sin before the, there are consequences? One time. Adam and Eve. And their initial disobedience to God ushered in the curse. That seems so unfair. Well, don't misunderstand. Jesus loves you so much, he's not going to force you to stay in his plan and his path. And what is so a catastrophe as that you and I would choose to say we want to do it a different way God uh, we have a better way God and he allows us in his gentleman grace to choose whether we love him or not and some choose to go their own way and move into destruction sin is very serious 
All throughout Scripture we find real-life examples of what has taken place, and, and we can see it in our own life around us, but there may be none that is more poignant to me that is so practical for us to see a pattern that not only happened in this man's life, but a pattern that I think is so common in our life today. It's David's real-life story. We find it in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. I'm not going to read those two chapters to you. I'm just going to summarize them here in just a moment. But I challenge you to look through them this afternoon. Don't take my word for it. See what God is telling us. This is very real. David's account starts like this. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, it was springtime. And that's the time that the kings would go off to war. But David decides he's not going to follow his responsibility. He's not going to go with his men into battle. And so he sends the army, his men, out to battle without him. He's going to sit this out. He's just going to take a vacation. He's just going to rest. You guys go do what I've sent you to do. I'm not going to go with you. One day while his army was off at war, David, he slipped, slept in till noon. He slept in till late in the afternoon, and he was just kind of being lazy. And when he slept in, he woke up, and he then slipped out onto his balcony. He went out on his balcony, was just kind of perusing his kingdom. He looked down, and he saw a beautiful woman taking a bath. Now, I need to interject some things here because that seems pretty strange to us. It seems like, well, what is this lady doing taking a bath outside? This is her fault. This is ridiculous. Well, in that day, it was common for houses to have cisterns on the top of their, their roof of their house. And it would collect rainwater. And it was common for women to wait to take their bath to the middle of the day when the sun had time to heat up that water, bring the water to a warmer temperature. And also in the afternoon, all the men were out doing what they should be doing. They were either in the fields working or they were out to war. And this was a very appropriate time for her to take a bath. And so as she was out taking a bath, David was the one who was in an inappropriate place. He was so taken by this woman's beauty that he sent one of his servants to go find her. The servant noticed that this woman, Bathsheba, was the wife of Uriah, a soldier in David's army. So this servant brought Bathsheba to the palace where King David was, that he ordered him to bring her there. And David was intimate with her. He began to do married things with his heart, his mind, and his body that he had no business doing with Bathsheba. Then Bathsheba was sent away by David. In his guilt, he sent her home. Bathsheba found out later that she was pregnant and sent word to King David that she was pregnant with his child. So David began to panic. He recognized that, that Bathsheba's husband was away and, and people would figure out that something had happened and she might talk. And so he begins this plan to cover it up. So he sends word to the general, general Joab of his army and said, send Uriah home to me. Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, came to the palace. And David works up this plan. He says, Uriah, thank you for all your great service. I want you to take a vacation day. I want you to go home and take a bath. I want you to spend the night with your wife. And then we'll send you back to war the next day. David shuts the palace doors in his face. Uriah, hearing this so confused, said, you know, I, I can't do this. I can't let down on my responsibility. Why, my men are giving up their life in battle. I'm not going to go home and take this vacation day. So he slept right there at the gates of the palace. David wakes up the next morning, opens the gates, see that Uriah has not leaved, so he goes to plan B. He says, all right, let's do take two. Hey, why don't you stay another night? Now he gets Uriah drunk, and he says, surely he's going to go home and relax and be with his wife, and then I can blame him for this child. And, and so he slams the door in his face, and again the next day, David finds Uriah 
stayed at the gates right there and did not go home. So now David sends Uriah back to battle. But when he sends him back, he gives this message to give to the general. And the general opens up the message and the message says, I want you to take Uriah and I want you to send him to the front lines of the battle. And I want you to have in the heat of the battle all the other soldiers pull back and let those on the front lines be overtaken by the enemy. The general looks at this and says, this is ridiculous, but I've got to obey the orders of my king. And so he does this and and the message comes back to King David. The account of all the innocent men that were killed and how Uriah was one of them, the great warrior who had also lost his life. Now David sends another message back. Don't be so worried about this. This is what happens in war. It's just casualties that happen. It's no big deal. When Bathsheba hears about her husband's death, she begins to mourn for him. And then as soon as it was politically correct, when there had been enough days in mourning, David brings Bathsheba to the palace, marries her, makes her his own. She became his wife and had their child. But Scripture says what David did displeased the Lord. What happened? How in the world did David go from just looking out of his back porch to murder? How in the world did he get from there to there? How did he do something so stupid? Look in your notes. This is not only true for David. I believe it's a template that happens in our life that Satan would love to press upon you. First is this. David was careless. David was in the wrong place at the wrong time. He was supposed to be at war with his men, but he chose to be lazy. David was lazy. He got up late in the afternoon. He was just doing whatever felt good to him in the moment. And in his carelessness, being at the wrong place at the wrong time, being lazy, David ignored his purpose. His carelessness led to a compromise. When we look at this compromise, we see that David let his eyes and his thoughts wander. He began to find himself in places that he should not be. And he entertained temptation instead of fleeing temptation. You know, there's a big difference between sinning and temptation. You, you can't keep a bird from flying over your head or doing a dive bomb attack on your head. But for you to allow a bird to build a nest in your hair or a nest in your beard, you have to actively participate. You just let the bird go get a twig and another twig and another twig. This is the idea of entertaining temptation. David now is inviting this temptation into his home. He's entertaining this temptation. And this compromise ultimately leads to David sinning. He commits adultery. But it doesn't stop. His carelessness led to a compromise. Now he's in full-blown cover-up mode. David tries to ignore his sin. How? He sends Bathsheba away. He's feeling guilty. Get out of here. Go back home. Then David tries to hide his sin. When he hears word that Bathsheba's pregnant, he's going to call Uriah home and and concoct this huge plan to cover it up. And in doing so, David tries to get others to lower their standard and to do less than what they should to cover up his sin. And when that didn't work, David chooses to sin again by murdering, covering up his first sin of adultery. Carelessness led to compromise, which led to a cover-up, and it ends every time in a great catastrophe. That's the price of sin. David allowed lust into his heart. He committed adultery. He 
violated Bathsheba. Innocent men were killed. Uriah was not only killed, but he was disgraced. And there was this illegitimate child. Friends, sin for David and sin for you and I will always take you farther than you ever wanted to go. Sin for David and sin for you and me will always make us stay longer than we intended to stay. Sin for David and sin for you and me will always cost us more than what we ever planned on pain. Well, Pastor Brady, that just seems kind of gloom and doom. And so Jesus hates sin so much, he, well, you should tell us to pluck out our eyes and cut off our hands and feet. And, and it's serious. And, and you've defined sin this way in the Bible. And, and this is what happened for David and all these things. Well, I'm just hopeless. And so I just can't help but sin in word, thought, and deed every day. There's nothing I can do. And so, so what should I do? Go on sinning? Well, that's a good question. I'm glad you asked that again. You're helping me out so much this morning. Good question. Look at 1 John 3, 5, and 6. John tells us, But you know that He appeared so that He might take away our sins, and that in Him is no sin. No one who lives in Him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen Him or known Him. Jesus' own words in John chapter 8, He tells the woman, Go and sin no more. Well, how is this possible? By the power of the Holy Spirit in our life, it's not that when we are filled with His Spirit that it is impossible for you and I to be disobedient. No, that's hogwash. But it is possible with the power of the Holy Spirit to live without being willfully disobedient. In fact, if that's something you're interested in or that perplexes you or if you'd like more information on that, that's what we talk about in entirety in in GP 201, looking at a life led and controlled by the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to have the power of the Holy Spirit in us that doesn't make it impossible for us to sin, but it makes it possible through His power that we don't have to stay captive to that willful disobedience over and over again? Well, how do we break free from sin's snare? Repentance. Repentance opens the door to God's cure for sin. We are saved by grace and faith in Jesus Christ alone. That is the cure. But repentance opens the door to that saving grace. Well, what does that mean, repentance? It means that we confess. Confess literally means to say the same thing about my sin that God says about it. I confess I am wrong. Realizing That an action or an attitude is wrong and it offends God. That's what it means to confess. I am wrong. Psalm 51 says, It's against you and you alone I have sinned and did this terrible thing. You saw it all and your sentence against me is just. But I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. Confession is a part of repentance, but so is a godly sorrow. I am sorrowly, sorrowly, sorrowful. Sorrowly, sorry. Easy for me to say, isn't it? What does it mean to be sorrowly sorry? What does it mean to have godly sorrow? Well, if I'm just sorry that I got caught or sorry that I got in a jam, then that is self-centered pity. But godly sorrow is when my heart breaks for what breaks God's heart. And so me being sorry is at a whole other level than me just kind of feeling bad about myself. It's saying, God, I have hurt you, I've hurt others around me, and you are breaking my heart for what breaks your heart. James 4, 9, let there be tears for the wrong things you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom 
instead of joy. It's appropriate to be broken before God in sorrow, with godly sorrow for our sin. Repentance is not only confession and godly sorrow. Third, with God's help, I am willing to quit. Not in my own strength, but with God's help. It's a person who never wants to commit that sin again. Isaiah 1.16, wash and make yourself clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Finally, after confession, confessing I am wrong, sorrowful sorriness of godly sorrow, being willing to quit with God's help, I am willing to be changed by God. A person who truly repents will prove their sorrow by allowing God to change their life. Well, that's just great, Brady. I, I know you said this was going to be a, a loving alarm from God, but I don't know if I feel the love. <laughs> hey, don't misunderstand. God loved you so much that He gave His one and only Son. He didn't want you to have to experience any of this death from sin. But He says this sin is very real. So here's what I believe that God is calling us to today. He's calling us not just to hear these words, but to act upon them. And if statistics are right at all, if half of them are right, there's a good percentage of us in this room who are struggling with this idea of how serious sin is. Some of us were right at the beginning of being careless. So I ask you this morning, are you careless with temptation? Are you putting yourself in places that you should not be? Are you spiritually lazy, sleeping in and not doing what God has called you to do? Are you walking into unnecessary temptation? Pastor Brady, I've not technically done anything wrong yet. Well, how close are you walking to the line? Are you flirting with sin? Are you flirting with the edge? Jesus says, hey, this is serious. You should rather pluck out your eyes and chop off your hands and chop off your feet than to live in disobedience. I love you so much, I don't want you to stay stuck in this. If you're here today... In a few moments, we're going to have an opportunity to meet God here at the altars. And if you feel like the Lord is putting his thumb in your back on an area where you may have grown careless, I want to encourage you. Jesus has his arms open. He says, I love you. Come in repentance. Come say the same thing about this carelessness that I say, that it's dangerous. You don't want to go down that path. Pastor Brady, what would people think of me if I would come to the altar in a message like this? You know, they'd probably think you're obeying God, doing the best thing you could possibly do. You know, whenever you wonder what people are thinking of you, here's a good clue. That's Satan talking to you, not God. God is not worried one bit about what other people think about you. But God is so hungry for you to move in the freedom. Others here today, it's not carelessness. You find yourself compromising in sin. Are you compromising in sin today? Are you inviting the very temptation into your house, into the living room of your heart? Are you entertaining and chewing and soaking on that temptation? Are you trying to blur God's standards? Friends, if you have to have an asterisk and have all these amendments to why what you're doing is okay because in light of your situation, it's allowed. This is a red flag. You are moving in disobedience. God says, don't, don't move into that. Don't compromise in sin. Others of you, it may not be in the carelessness of the compromise. You're in full-blown cover-up mode. You're doing everything you can to hide your sin. To hide it from others. To hide it from yourself. In fact, you, you find yourself not only trying to rationalize your sin and compromise, 
you find yourself even moving in new areas of disobedience to keep your sins secret. Jesus says, stop. Maybe you're in the final category. You're in the catastrophe of sin. If you're hearing me here, you're not even arguing with me. You just throw your hands up. It's, 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 it's hopeless. It's a catastrophe. Everything's caved in on me. All the things around me are falling apart. Friend, there is hope. Jesus says, stop at any moment. Repent. It opens the door to my saving grace that I want to give to you. If David would have stopped at any place along the journey, at carelessness, at compromise, at the cover-up, it could have prevented the catastrophe that brought great pain to him and everybody else around him. So here's what we're going to do in just a few moments. In about 36 seconds, Pastor Edgar's going to sing a song. And I'm going to give you an opportunity to do what may feel like a hard thing, to stand up right where you're at, to step out and to come to the altar, and we're going to pray together. Some may be coming to just talk about carelessness. Pastor Brady, I don't know that there's anything that I've, I've done that's, that's sin, but, but I'm finding myself getting careless and I don't want to go down that path. Friend, come meet the Lord in repentance and allow him to, to bring you back to your first love. Others... It's that rationalizing. It's that compromise. You're kind of mad at me right now. You can't wait till I shut up so you can walk out these doors and not listen to it anymore. But friend, I want you to know I'm not trying to make you mad, but I love you enough to tell you what you need to know and not tell you what you want to hear. And Jesus loves you that much. He's not the killjoy in your life, but he's saying, don't do this. It's going to hurt you. It's going to hurt everybody around you. Stop, stop, stop. Start doing this. It's going to bless you. It's going to bless everybody around you. Come on, my son, my child. Move in obedience. There's someone here today that, I mean, the enemy is working overtime. Cover up, cover up. Keep it closed. You can do this at home. Don't do it now. Wait till later. Push it off. Push it off. Delay, delay. You are on the edge of victory. Satan working that hard for you says he is freaking out scared. He is so scared that you may take Jesus' word as truth and you begin to treat sin the way that he treats sin. And guess what? He is greater than the one that is in the world. The one that is in you can conquer all the darkness around you. There is hope when we come in confession and repentance. And hear me, there's someone who's crushed. The whole time you've been hearing me preach, you feel you are worthless. You feel there is nothing good in you. You feel like if everybody knew what was going on in your life, they would hate you. And Satan has nothing left but to crush your very spirit. And Jesus says, you are my son and daughter. I'm going to run to you and wrap my arms around you. But it starts in you repenting. Well, that was longer than 36 seconds. But the time is now. And so if you want the freedom that Jesus promises for you, As Pastor Edgar sings this song, you don't wait for anybody else. You stand up. You step out. Come to this altar. We're going to pray together. Let's do that right now.